Welcome to Two Bees in a Podcast, brought to you by the Honeybee Research and Extension Laboratory at the University of Florida's Institute of Food and Agricultural Sciences. It is our goal to advance the understanding of honeybees and beekeeping, grow the beekeeping community, and improve the health of honeybees everywhere. In this podcast, you'll hear research updates, beekeeping management practices discussed, and advice on beekeeping from our resident experts, beekeepers, scientists, and other program guests. Join us for today's program, and thank you for listening to Two Bees in a Podcast. Hello and welcome to this episode of Two Bees in a Podcast. In this episode, we'll be joined by Bill Hesback, who's a master beekeeper and president of the Connecticut Queen Breeders Co-op. He will be joining us to talk about how to overwinter honeybee colonies, specifically how much insulation they need and whether or not they need ventilation. We'll follow that with a five-minute management on how to be a good neighbor. If you keep bees, at some point you're going to have people on the other side of the fence interested in what you're doing, and you want to make sure and keep those folks happy, we'll tell you how. And of course, at the end of today's podcast, we'll finish with our question and answer segment. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this segment of Two Bees in a Podcast. I've actually really got a treat for you guys. You know, I I write a monthly question and answer column for the American Bee Journal. It's called The Classroom. And there are plenty of times where our listeners, or sorry, our readers in that case, ask me questions that I can't answer. And one of those is that I live in you know a warm climate. So anytime I get cold climate questions, you know, how to overwinter bees in cold climates? Well, what about insulating bee colonies? I have to find someone I can ask. And, and I've gotten a lot of those questions recently, which brings me all the way to our guest today, Bill Hesback, who's got a lot of different uh, expertise in his background. I'm going to go through this list of things that he's done. He is a master beekeeper with the Eastern Apiculture Society. He's completed his master beekeeper with the University of Montana. He writes regularly for the American Bee Journal on bee culture. So a lot of beekeepers around the U.S. and elsewhere have heard of him. He's the president of the Connecticut Queen Breeders Cooperative, soon to be president of the Connecticut Beekeepers Association. He runs his own apiary called Wing Dance Apiary out of Cheshire, Connecticut. And all of that, he's even hosted me in his house when I spoke (laughs) <laughs> to the Connecticut Beekeepers Association. Bill, I'm not sure what you can do as a beekeeper. Thank you for joining us on Two Bees in a Podcast. You're welcome. It's, it's an honor to be here. Well, I tell you, you know, it's funny that we're able to interview you now. It happens to be winter. It's February 3rd, 2021. And winter in Florida is different from winter in Connecticut, for sure. But, but every time I ask people about winter management questions, they always say, oh, you got to go ask Bill. Bill knows all of these things. So a lot of our topic today is going to be winter management. But before we get there, Bill, if you don't mind, could you just, just tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, how you got into beekeeping. We find that our listeners love to know a little bit about our guests. So, so introduce yourself. You know, how did you get into this? And, and, and ultimately, you know, how do you experience the joys of beekeeping? Oh, well, uh, my, my first introduction to beekeeping was way back in the, in the 80s. I read this little book on um, the art and adventure of beekeeping. It was an extraordinary little book, and I kept it on my bookshelf for years. It sparked my interest. It was a father and son story about how they managed to navigate the peculiarities of beekeeping, and they explained it in very plain language, and it just sort of hooked me right at the beginning. And I kept that little book in view on my bookshelf for a number of years. And the first opportunity I got to keep these 
in a in a sort of a hobby way uh, was much later, uh, and and then um, my interest sort of grew from then. When I began to actually experience beekeeping, I was just totally floored by the the both the art and the adventure of beekeeping. So. And I, from then, I just grown into a love for the basic insect. I love the biology piece. I like the fact that it draws me into the ecosphere. And I learned, I've learned so much in, in the meantime about how, you know, how all the floral sources work in concert with the biology in the colony. And I took it to another level by extending my education to different areas that would, from professionals, that would teach me, you know, more and more about beekeeping. And I just continually grow in the fascination of it all. So that's, that's essentially, I'm hooked. Basically, I love the science. Sometimes I spend a little too much reading um, the science. Um, but I also love the observational part. And I think that if, if beekeepers begin to understand how the biology in the colony is yoked to the ecosphere, they cross through some threshold that is just delightful and makes, uh, makes your times that with the bees, just marvelous. Bill, you and I are cut from the same cloth. When I when I started keeping bees at 12 years old, I was just interested in just keeping bees. But the, the longer I kept bees, the more I just kind of fell in love with what bees do, their biology, ecology. And I remember when I was able to stay in your house in early 2020, you know, I really got that sense from you, that, that you know, wonderment, amazement um, associated with just watching bees do what they do. And oh, by the way, they give us honey and pollinate our crops, right? So it's, <laughs> it's, it's neat. It's neat. It was a neat interaction. I'm, I'm grateful that you're able to join us today. So, Bill, it's funny that you had mentioned that, you know, you were reaching out to the specialists and, and the researchers because now you're our go-to person. So <laughs> well, we actually... No, no pressure, Bill. No pressure. <laughs> so we actually received an email. Um, we, we had put out a survey last year asking people about, you know, what questions they had for our podcast, uh, just different topics that they wanted to hear about. And one of our listeners had emailed us and said that, you know, up north, they usually do some kind of extra ventilation or use a quilt um, to help with overwintering. And this listener had recently heard Dr. Megan Milbrath, who we've had on our podcast in previous segments. So they had heard that she actually specifically does not you know, use any kind of extra ventilation. And so this was something that she had recommended that we speak to you about. And so I guess you are our expert now on ventilation and overwintering, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, with that said, I guess we'll just kind of start from the beginning. Can you talk to us about what honeybees do to survive uh, during a cold climate? Yes. So in the Northeast, especially in just about anywhere in the world where temperatures are consistently below 50 degrees, ambient temperatures, bees form a cluster somewhere in the colony and they, they thermoregulate from there. They generate heat from their from their flight muscles and they maintain a, a central core a cluster of bees that are, are fairly warm and then a mantle and what I would consider an outside shell that uh, all three of those different areas are different temperatures. There's what they refer to as isotherms. They get it's warmer in the middle uh, clusters. Well, it's actually quite warm in the middle. The mantle is a little bit different temperature and then the outside shell is just a single layer of bees facing inward. Now, if you if you think about that, if your viewers want to visualize this in some way, they can actually use a chicken egg to think more about it, the yolk being the sort of cluster and the white being the mantle and then the outside shell, the same as the outside shell of, uh, of a cluster. So those um, parts 
are where the bees regulate temperature. And it gets very complicated when you start thinking about everything that occurs inside of a cluster during the winter, all of the moisture that's developed from just regular metabolization of honey and, and all of the, the oxygen levels and carbon dioxide levels that change. There's a bunch of folklore or oral tradition around what people try to do to either mediate what beekeepers do to try to mitigate the effects of excess moisture in the cluster and also the, the gases that come out of the regular bees eating honey, metabolizing honey. So uh, yeah, so there's a, lot of, there's a lot of areas to talk about in the actual cluster piece. And so I usually <clears throat> leave it there, but I, we, we should really flesh out some of the peculiarities and especially around ventilation, because beekeepers just, in my opinion, don't really understand much about that part. And in the northern climates where it gets really cold, if you follow some of the folklore or oral tradition around ventilation and all the rest of the ideas to take moisture away from the colony, you can uh, do some damage. Bill, you've, you've said a few things now that make me want to ask about a million questions. And so <laughs> I'm, trying to, I'm trying to make sure and get all of my questions in because I think this is very important to listeners because, it, you know, I, I guess the questions I receive for the American Bee Journal as well as questions I just get randomly emailed here at the University of Florida or get left on our social media those questions end up being season specific. So when it's winter, I tend to get a lot of winter type questions, right? And so recently I've really been getting a lot of questions about insulation. One that I can remember is a gentleman emailed me and said, you know, I'm a builder. I understand our factors and this and that and the other, and I live in a Northern climate. And I'm just curious what research has been done on insulating colonies, making sure that ventilation, and I, and I was looking up and I, I was really struggling to find informa- like true scientific information on uh, insulating colonies, which is when I reached out to a couple of colleagues and they pushed us to you. And here we have this podcast episode. So gosh, there's so many things I want to ask you. I guess I'll just start with a basic question. How important is ventilation in a colony? And then after that, I'm going to ask you, well, how important is insulating a colony during <laughs> winter? So first things first, how important is ventilating a colony while they are clustering? And is it important at all? This is an issue that I constantly get questioned about also. And so to actually get your head around the need for ventilation or not in a colony, you have to run back to where how bees survive in trees. And bees in trees are adding no no additional ventilation to that colony at all. And the way they deal with moisture is completely different than when we have taken them out of that tree and put them in, in a thin-walled box. So when, when we did that, when we took bees out of trees and began to keep them in boxes, we assumed then we assume the responsibilities for the vapor cycle and ventilation and all of that, that the bees control quite naturally inside of a tree. So there's a dichotomy in understanding. There's either you understand the notion of how a bee colony condenses moisture and deals with CO2 inside a tree and how that same process takes place inside of a box. And if you ventilate without knowledge of the needs for the cluster inside that box, you can, uh, you can put them in a survival mode that will require them to use a tremendous amount of honey to keep warm all winter. And so, you know, it can be dangerous to the bees. Now, what I like to tell people when they ask me this question is, 
you can actually survive in your own home if you go up to the top floor and open up all the windows. You'll, the furnace will come on and you'll use a lot of fuel and you, you can get through the winter, you might even survive, but you know the cost of that is a lot of energy that goes out of the colony in, in different ways. And so in my thinking of it, in my own research with it, and I include uh, some of the work by guys like Derek Mitchell, who know the food mechanics of this much better than I do, and also the my own observations about actually replicating that whole idea about how bees in trees use their moisture and condense it in forms that give them back latent heat and all of that. I try to reproduce that in my own colonies and I make them into condensing boxes. So what I'm known for in the beekeeping community is somebody who knows about condensing colonies and how they work. And by condensing colony, I mean that one colony that conserves moisture and uses it in a way that's beneficial to the bees. You know, the whole water cycle inside the tree has been perfected by, in, by over millions of years by, by bees and or at least hundreds of thousands. So then and, just quickly as an interjection, I'm, I'm reading <laughs> into your statements and hearing you say that moisture in a colony is not necessarily bad during winter, which is, you know, what a lot of people kind of robot recommendation. Well, you got to get that moisture out. You got to get that moisture out. So yeah. you're saying bees oh. can actually use it to their advantage. Well, actually, bees have evolved to be conservationists of moisture in the winter cluster. And what we've done is because, and there's a good reason for this, Jamie, and the reason for it is that beekeepers observe right away that what happens in a cluster where you have no insulation on that box whatsoever, and I'm talking about a Langstroth box now, where there's a cluster in it, and the bees give off a certain amount of moist air, and it follows up, the natural convection is that that moisture will follow will go up upward because it's lighter because it's been heated and it meets a cold surface. The first thing that happens is it will condense into moisture at that point. And beekeepers early on in adoption of thin walled boxes notice this. Some of that might even freeze up there right over the top of the cluster. Then when a little bit of warm weather comes, it might defrost and then drip down cold water on bees. So that observation led to the practice of adding ventilation, except there's absolutely no knowledge base that could guide beekeepers in that respect. So how much ventilation do you add and when? So the, the folklore around that is, is an incredible. It's, it's a continuum from, you know, power ventilation, where people have put solar devices on to blow in through the cluster in the winter, close spins under the telescoping cover to, you know, all kinds of different quilt boxes. And all of that is all because folks noticed that they can kill their colony if they don't, if there's no insulation over a cluster that's producing moisture in the middle of the winter. Now, if you can reverse all of that by doing a simple thing, and the simple, the most, the simplest way to deal with the way bees develop their moisture in the cluster in the winter is to insulate over the top of that cluster, heavily insulate over the top of that cluster. What you do when you do that is you let the normal convection flow come up, but it meets a, a barrier of insulation, high R value insulation. And in that case, the moist air spreads out over that top once it's warmed and finds its way down to the peripheral of the bee box and down along the sides of the comb, maybe even out the bottom board, or if you have a screen board, it goes out there. And in that way, you've recreated what 
occurs inside of a tree. The exact same thing happens. Bees have been happy to propolize the entire inside of their natural cavity. When moisture goes up to that top surface, there's almost that infinite amount of insulation over, over the top of a beehive inside of a tree. And there's also a thick layer of insulation around the sides of the bee and literally the same thing below, but, but that's not even a consideration. So once you've recreated that inside a Langstroth box, the bees begin to function in the way that they are accustomed to function and have been. And they go back to being able to control the moisture and the vapor exactly the way that they have learned to do it inside of a tree or evolved to do it inside of a tree. Very spectacular things happen under those conditions. One is that, you know, the carbon dioxide in the center of that cluster increases and, and also the, the oxygen level goes down. It puts bees in that case into hypoxia, which would normally kill human beings, but bees have a way to go into an ultra low metabolic rate at that point. And they conserve energy and, and, and benefit the whole, the whole cluster. So bees have a way to not only deal with the moisture that comes off of their cluster, they have a, a, another way to actually shift their biology in, in the center of that cluster that makes them more efficient at using fuel. Then the rest of it, you know, the, the moisture that does escape from the colony finds its way up to that top layer. When it does condense on the outside walls, when it spreads out along the top and finally does condense on the outside walls, it gives off latent heat in the form of droplets. Because when water goes from, there's a lot of energy stored in vapor because it, it needed a lot of energy to vaporize. And then when it condenses, it lets, gives that latent heat off. And in that way, the bees have learned through evolution that they can actually recover a percentage of the heat that they invest in making vapor. That's not something that can happen when you ventilate a colony. That just it, all of that stuff goes out to the atmosphere. I was going to say that. Let me let me just ask then, just uh, for a summary statement on ventilation. You would argue don't ventilate, insulate. I would argue. I would argue don't ventilate, insulate. Okay. Yes. All right. I would absolutely yeah. do that. And uh, over the top of the cluster. Over the top. Over the top. Kind of like a what you would make as a tree. I mean, it would basically be like the honeybees sitting in a trunk of a tree. Yes. Okay. Um, so then what are some arguments that people would have against insulation? Because I know that you did write um, an article that we will link to our additional resources, but there was a section on the arguments against insulation. Yes. So what well, are some of those arguments? Those have been slavishly repeated fallaciously over the top, over the years. One of them is that if you insulate your colonies, they won't feel the temperature change and they, they can't take advantage of cleansing flights. And, you know, the inconvenient truth about that is that that's absolutely not true. I mean, I run colonies all the time in my yards and I, I, I insulate heavily on my production colonies. And there are other colonies that for different reasons, I don't insulate during the year. And I observed their, their cleansing flights and they occur almost identically in, in both insulated colonies and, and uninsulated colonies. So, so the first myth I would, I would try to destroy is that bees do, can't feel the outside temperature in an insulated box and they don't take advantage of cleansing flights. That's absolutely um, not true in my experience. And I um, know of many other beekeepers that um, have built my insulation sleeve and have reported the same thing to me over the years. So um, that's one. 
Um, the other one is that if you um, provide insulation, then you prevent the sun from warming the box. Well, it's this, we, we know nothing about the solar gain from, say, wrapping tar paper around your colony. Folks suspect that some of the winter sun heats that tar paper up to some temperature and then somehow or another the warm air rising off that tar paper mysteriously heats the inside of the of the box but that's that's not what happens so <clears throat> if anybody really is interested in looking at how all of that works they, I refer to them to Owen's study that was in 1971 he did a study up in um, <clears throat> Madison Wisconsin and did it for five years so he took a million two hundred thousand data points using 16 to uh, 2200 uh, different thermocouples that he that he placed strategically inside all of those colonies. And you can go look at the actual way that those isotherms change with the changes in heat in the environment. Now he used control colonies, heated colonies, and what they refer to back then as packed colonies, which would be insulated. And if anybody wants to see how that changes and and they can just look at all of that data, it's a lot of it's graphical so it's not it's not a whole lot of technical reading and you can get through that and when you come out of that study just looking at the graphics you'll understand that the ambient temperature has very little to do with the way the isotherms or the different temperature gradients inside the colony work and bees have an incredible sense to figure out what the ambient temperature is because it's always hitting their cluster in some way and they know you know the Gel bees know that it's 50 degrees outside or 55 degrees outside, and we can take a cleansing flight. So those are the two big ones. Um, uh, the, the real confusion about insulation for beekeepers, and the one that I would encourage beekeepers to really look at, is the use of substances that are sort of pseudo-insulation, like tar paper being wonders. That is not insulation, but a lot of beekeepers think about it as insulation. And it's a building material that was used to wrap houses, or is still used to wrap houses to keep out the wind, the infiltration it, of wind. It's, it's so funny that you mentioned that one as an example, because a lot of the things that I see that people sell as colony wraps, to me, look very thin and like they would have essentially no R value at all. You're mentioning tar paper, but I've seen these kind of black shells too. So I mean, I think this is spot on. A lot of people think they're getting benefits from stuff that they're likely not getting benefits from, right? Yeah, absolutely. And and the other one would be the other insulation material that is, you know, people will, will realize that tar paper may not be insulation because first of all, it has to have mass, has to have thermal mass to be, and it has to have an R value. And, and of course, tar paper has none of those. But the other one is homosote. Now, homosote has been a, was a popular, is, is a popular addition to, uh, winter beekeeping up here in, in North. I would it, discourage anyone from using homosote in their colony for any reason. First of all, it's a paper product and it's put together with different adhesives. And one of the features of homosote is that it was it's used inside building envelopes and that building envelopes require insecticides. So they put borax in it. So they there's a percentage of insecticide in all good homosote. Now, when I wrote this in my article, I got a letter from one of the sales managers in the region for homosote, and he had he wanted to have this discussion with me about, you know, why was I why was I saying this bad thing for beekeepers and homosote? And, and then he, he he sort of acknowledged my my thoughts about it. He validated my thoughts that that they use um, borax 
a borate solution inside their homostove for insecticide. So I, you know, my, my opinion about putting, uh, and then by the way, also, if you think about it, it does have a half of that, half of an R value when it's dry, but if you put it on top of a cluster where most people put it, it gains moisture very rapidly because it's paper. And when it does that, it not only loses all of its R value, but it becomes a, a block of frozen material on top of the bees, which radiates back or absorbs heat and radiates cold back to the cluster. So I would discourage that. And by the way, the, the other big uh, misconception about insulation is that they, folks in, and I see this all the time, people will put insulation above ventilation. And that has absolutely, that there's absolutely nothing that negates the complete uh, use of any kind of uh, insulation. So they'll put quilt boxes on top of bee colonies in place of their inner, inner cover. And then they put materials inside there to collect moistures and they drill holes in the side of the box to get really inventive about it. And they filter a lot of cold air right over the top of the cluster. And, and then they put um, insulation on top of all of that, which does absolutely nothing. You know, that would be like putting, you know, insulation in your backyard, hoping that it would uh, help with your heating bill on your house. Well, Bill, I think so that doesn't, really, that, that doesn't yeah. work. <laughs> <laughs> so, Bill, I think this leads to a really you know, important kind of grand conclusion. So beekeepers maybe are listening at this point going, OK, I know I know not what to do. Right. So yeah. what then do you recommend? Right. You know, people, I don't know, maybe a third or a half of the world's beekeepers are keeping bees in cold climates. So what do you recommend regarding ventilation and insulation? What do you think is necessary to do? Well, I so. I fall into a, a marginal category of beekeepers that subscribe to this whole idea that if you can get your colony back to where it most it, it functions in concert with the way bees have lived in trees, that's what you do. And to do that, it's I think it's uh, in, in the wintertime especially, you run insulation over the top of your cluster and nothing else, no top ventilation at all. Most beekeepers put top ventilation in, even if they have an insulated cover. And what that, what occurs there, and then the let's say guys like Derek Mitchell and all of those folks can do the fluid dynamics much better than I can. As a matter of fact, the formulas make me go crazy. But um, the, you know, you can get thermosiphons and draw cold air right to the center of the cluster and defeat everything that the bees are trying to do to maintain heat in that cluster. So I suggest that people, you, if you want, if you want folks to, you know, if folks are really interested in this and they want an idea of if they can, if you're going to link my article to it, I explain how to make that in the in back of that article, I explain how to make the box that I recommend people use to overwinter. And, and it, and it basically lets the bees regulate the hive gases exactly the way they want. Well, then we will make a point, Bill, then to link that in our show notes so people can have a look. Mm -hmm. So it seems like some take home messages are do not ventilate. There's no top ventilation. Number two, insulate over the top of the hive. And, and could you give us just a brief overview of what that looks like? Are we talking two or three in layers of what? What, what the R value well, of what? I mean, what does this look like? Yeah. Yeah. So um, it's enough to use one inch of foam, in my experience. But folks that have adapted my box method, have gone to extremes with the top insulation and put on say R25 or so, you know, uh, but I usually go around R7 
insulation. That's just a one inch layer of foam. I make a sleeve that also goes over the outside out of the same material. And then I also make a special sort of telescoping cover that goes over both of those. So if you look at the way my colonies winter, they winter inside an insulation shell that would be similar to a tree, close as I could get it. But I, and then I, during the winter, I check on all the time when, it, when I think it's appropriate for me to get in there and take a look at the inner cover. And I, and I can see on my telescoping cover, when I lift my telescoping cover, I can see the patterns of moisture on it. And it's never, it, there is never any droplets of moisture over the center cluster. And by the way, the bees will then find their way up to that insulation and they lay on it all winter long. So my bees winter on the top box as a result of that. The same way bees would winter in a tree as high as they could possibly get. So do you have beekeepers that have taken um, what you use for practice between, you know, ventilation and insulation, or I guess lack of ventilation, insulation. Do you see that other beekeepers are also doing this? And have you worked with commercial beekeepers uh, versus the small scale beekeepers on this? And what does that look like? It, is the practice different? Has it worked differently for different beekeepers that you've worked with? Yeah, well, so now let me let me just back up a little bit and, and uh, flesh out just for a second. If what happens if you don't insulate? So if you insulate, then you do need to put some kind of ventilation in that colony. Because if you don't insulate, you'll run into the original problem. You'll have a bunch of moisture that'll freeze on whatever cold surface that moisture hits and it could drip down on the cluster. So if people are obstinate and say, well, I don't wanna, I don't wanna insulate at all. You don't need to do that and all that. There's a bunch of that, you know, so then they do have to provide some kind of ventilation or they're gonna run into a situation where they might kill their bees from excess moisture, not excess moisture build up in the colony, but the fact that it condensed into frost, hoar frost, and then melted and came back down on top of the cluster. So I'm not suggesting that everybody not ventilate. What I'm suggesting is that people run their colony with insulation over the top cluster and as much around the side as they can, they, they want to build. And if they do that, then they don't have to ventilate at all. And they shouldn't put a top ventilation in. If they don't insulate anything and they want to let their bees run on in cold boxes all winter long, then they do need to do something about the moisture because they will end up with a problem because the bees on the outside of that mantle will be generating heat to survive. And they and on the outside mantle, those bees are only about 50, 50 degrees or so. And they have to make sure that they're consuming lots of honey just to stay alive. And uh, when they do that, they make a lot of moisture so you can mitigate all of that by insulation, but if you don't insulate, you're gonna get a lot of moisture. So how would you see, I'm gonna just restate Amy's question and she can, so how do you see that bill differing between, I mean, I could see small scale beekeepers running out and doing this, but what about a beekeeper no. with 10,000 colonies? Is this no, a recommendation? No, that's it's not, yeah, no, but this is not for, the beekeepers that, that I know that have 10,000 colonies, they're down in your neck of the woods right now. You know, they're, they don't stay in, they don't overwinter in cold climates, not that I know of. And if they do, uh, they probably don't pay, I don't know any of them that actually stay cold, big operations that stay cold all winter. And if they do, they, they do it like they do in Canada. They'll put them in um, wonderful uh, big spaces that they've designed to winter bees in. The, the trend, as far as I know from uh, my discussions with Manhattan and those folks up in Canada, you know, that they've sort of perfected the art of cold wintering by putting them in storage units that keep 
everything at about 40 degrees. And 40 degrees is the perfect ambient temperature for wintering bees. They use the least amount of resources and they don't fly because the ambient temperature doesn't allow them to their flight, their flight muscles to work. And they, you know, you know, if before that temperature, you know, it's colder than that, they're, they, they don't move and they generate a lot of heat around 40. They're in that sort of sweet spot. And then as it gets above 40, they become more active and use more fuel. So, you know, so people that overwinter understand the notion that they have to maintain that sort of temperature, that 40 degree temperature, big operations that do that in, in the commercial sense. Then the other thing that they do up north, which I think is incredible, is they have begun to uh, winter over in single boxes and they actually bury, they use equipment to bury all their single boxes in igloos of snow, no ventilation, no outside sunlight, nothing hits them. So they replicate they, in that sort of environment of a inside wintering situation under an igloo of snow. Yards with mounds of snow, which if in all logic, people would look at that and say, you just killed your whole yard of bees. But when they, when they dissect those things later on in the season, if you were to cut one of those in half diagonally, you would notice that the bees have excavated a portion in front of the colony, even under that dome where they can fly and, and have, have their cleansing flights and go on and, and manage their cluster the way they would in a 40 degree environment. So it's kind of interesting. When I travel to a lot of research meetings, one of the big topics these days is indoor cold storage. Just like what you said, the Canadian mm. beekeepers are doing that. A lot of beekeepers up north. And you're right. Commercial beekeepers basically do one of two things there. This is an overgeneralization, of course, but you're right. A lot of them come down to warmer climates, to overwinter where it's warmer or you know, they're exploring some of these newer strategies like overwintering and cold storage units, basically large refrigerators that, that are yeah. able to accommodate thousands of colonies. So, Bill, let me ask you a burning question. This will be the easiest set for you today to spike this question down. I get this question asked of me probably every third talk I give. What about screen bottom boards? Do you suggest closing screen bottom boards on colonies during winter, giving, given everything that you've just said? For screen bottom boards, I suggest that folks put a put some kind of a piece of luon or some something that would block even a sticky board, something that would uh, block that screen. And the only reason is that there would, if you, if you again, if you look at, I don't want to get too technical about it. If you look at the fluid dynamics piece of it, it's not likely that you're going to get currents to go up through the colony through the screen. But I, you know, I always think that there's in we have nor'easters. We had uh, one just a couple of days ago different interesting patterns of wind occur around the colony and that could drive some real cold air streams up into the colony. So just to block that insulation on the bottom is not necessary. Well, Bill, let me just say that I've learned so much during this interview that I'm now going to start answering questions differently than I have in the past. <laughs> now <laughs> we like, actually have an answer. <laughs> yeah, I feel like I need to run back and uh, rewrite a couple of things, <laughs> but it's too late for that. Bill, that was great. Thank you so much for spending time with us on Two Bees in a Podcast and sharing with us your knowledge about insulation, ventilation, and overwintering colonies. Yeah, I hope it was, it was a lot of fun. And there's so much more to talk about in terms of the dynamics of that winter cluster, it's a science in itself. You know, yeah, well, if, you're, if your readers are interested in some of the things we talked about, and also some of the points I made, you know, some of the science that I, I'd suggest that they look at it a little bit and do some research. Mobis is one that synthesized a lot of this research into an article he wrote in ABJ back in um, 89. That's available 
and um, they could get that and then look at Southwick's work or, you know, if, the, if there's technical folks that, that want to read some more, there's a bunch, what Southwick has a bunch of interesting science on the, on the winter cluster and how it operates and what it does with moisture and how it gets into these low metabolic rates and all that. And there's lots of other ones, Owens, as I mentioned up in that uh, Canadian study, lots of good information around. So th this has all been what I've discussed about how the winter cluster operates is not my opinion. You know, it, it, it's, there's, there's lots of solid science behind it. Well, Bill, I'll tell you what, we'll make a point and link to these articles you suggest. That way, when people hear this podcast, they'll they'll be able to read these documents on their own. So thank you so much for that. This has been a great discussion, everybody. That's been Bill Hesback, who wears a lot of hats, has a lot of background, but, but we'll say he's a master beekeeper for the Eastern Apiculture Society, a master beekeeper, University of Montana, writes articles regularly for the American Bee Journal, Bee Culture, president of Connecticut Queen Breeders Cooperative, soon to be the president of the Connecticut Beekeepers Association. He runs his own apiary out of Cheshire, Connecticut, called Wing Dance Apiary. Uh, certainly a good expert on winter, uh, overwintering colonies, insulation, ventilation, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that segment, learned a lot. Make sure and check out the show notes so that you can learn more about strategies that you can do to your colonies or use on your colonies to overwinter them successfully. Questions or comments? Don't forget to like and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at UF Honeybee Lab. All right, it's the five minute management time. Five minute management. Jamie, I have started the timer and our topic for today is how to be a good neighbor. Yeah. So Amy, you've made me nervous that you've started the timer <laughs> because there's 25 recommendations I have on how to be a good neighbor. So before that's I even, yeah, just that's it. So before <laughs> I even start to answer, we're going to link a document I wrote about this topic in the show notes. Since I can't speak about any one of these for any great length of time, go to the show notes Click on the link to this document and you'll see all of these expanded. So Amy, here we go. All 25. Number one, locate your apiary or colonies away from areas where people or domestic animals frequent, right? You just don't want people mm -hmm. to encounter your colonies a lot. That's just makes sense. Site your bee colonies away from property lines. Don't put them right up against the neighbor's fence. Number three, make your colonies inconspicuous. Whenever possible, hide them behind bushes, put them around the corner, et cetera. I've discovered when people don't know your bees are there, miraculously, they don't get stung. <laughs> when they know your bees are there, somehow they get stung all the time. So How does that happen? <laughs> out of sight, out of mind. Number four, when people can access your colonies easily, make sure you mark those colonies with signage to signal their presence and to advise people to stay away. Number five. Fence your colonies whenever possible. If you are able to put a fence around them to keep folks from stumbling across them, that's great to do. Number six is not something you have to do, but some people have done and it's worked for them. Rooftop beekeeping. Some people in subdivisions just put their bees up on their garage if they've got a flat roof and that keeps the bees all together out of the way of their neighbors. Number seven, and this is hard for beekeepers. Be reasonable about the number of bee colonies you keep per mm -hmm. unit area. Mm -hmm. If you live in a subdivision and have half an acre of land, don't put out a hundred bee colonies. Your neighbors will not like you. <laughs> so be reasonable. 
Some people disagree with me on point eight, but what I always say is it's probably better to tell your neighbors about your bees. You can always tell them with a jar of honey. Hey, I'm keeping yep. bees on the property. Just wanted to let you know that here's a jar of honey so that you'll be okay with it. Some people say, don't tell your neighbors about your bees, but I tend to like to have everything on the table so they know where to go if there are some issues. Number nine, don't take guests close to your bee colonies if they're not protected appropriately. I have made that mistake plenty of times. It's very tempting to say, oh, I love my bees and they're so nice and I'm going to take my neighbor by them today. That's guaranteed to get your neighbor stung in the face. So mm -hmm. <laughs> only take your friends or neighbors or guests to bee colonies if they are protected appropriately. Number 10, give only professionally conducted tours and public demonstrations of the bees in your apiary. In other words, you want to do it well and right and not set yourself up for a problem, which leads me to my next point, 11, have insurance. If you're going to keep bees where people frequent, you might want to have some insurance to protect you from liability issues. Number 12, consider developing and using a sting waiver. If you're one of those people who like to take folks into your bees and you want to follow some good neighbor guidelines, have a sting waiver, something that says, hey, you know, you're going to work bees with me and you could get stung. Here's what you need to know. Mm -hmm. Number 13, be mindful when managing bees in public places. People love to watch people work bees. Just be aware of that. Number 14, take similar precautions when keeping bees on private lands. Again, if you might be keeping bees at a library, but you also might keeping bees in your backyard, you want to just make sure that you're, you're professional in both settings. Number 15, learn as much as you can about bee stings, how to prevent them, and how to treat them. It's useful to be able to spot problems with stings, responses to stings, if you take people into your bees a lot. Number 16, provide your contact information to people who live near or frequent the area where your colonies are. That way they can get a hold of you if there's a swarm or the bees are doing something crazy. Number 17, register your bees with your state or appropriate local regulatory authority. Even if it's voluntary, it's good to be on their books. Number 18, ensure that your bees have a good source of clean water nearby. Otherwise, they will end up where you don't want them. Your neighbor's swimming pool is a hot spot, as an example. Number 19, use bee stocks known to be gentle. Don't use bee stocks that are known to be defensive. Number 20, requeen defensive colonies. Don't allow a colony to be mean. That colony will get after your friends and neighbors. 21, ensure that your colonies have adequate food reserves so they're not robbing or going after the sweet stuff in your neighbor's backyard or showing up at their picnics. You've hit five minutes, but I guess I I'll know. let you continue. I've only got a few more. I'm <laughs> surprised that I'm actually making this much progress. I added 22. a little bit of time. I felt bad for you. <laughs> 22, don't place or leave anything in your apiary that's going to call an cause an apiary-wide freezing feeding frenzy. In other words, if you live in a subdivision, don't put out a super to be robbed by your bees. That's just not good neighbor practices. 23, Practice good swarm control techniques. You don't want your bees swarming into your neighbor's yard or clusters of your bees hanging out at the nearby school. So practice swarm control practice. 24, follow all locally adapted best management practices. In other words, whatever the experts are recommending for you as far as management goes in your region, do it. 25, and finally, work your colonies in a way that minimizes colony disturbance. Use smoke, be calm, do things that don't send your bees into a frenzy. And if you do all 25 of these things, you'll be <laughs> doing lots and lots and lots 
to uh, be a good neighbor with your bees and beekeeping. Don't forget to check out this document in the show notes. There's a lot more information, but Amy, that was as quick as I could do it. There were lots of, lots of pointers in that one. There are lots of pointers on that one. Yeah. So now everyone knows how to be a good neighbor. Or at least a good neighbor with their bees. I don't know. Yeah, that's fair. (laughs) It's everybody's favorite game show, Stomp the Chomp. All right. It's a question and answer time. Jamie, the first question is regarding temporary queen pheromones. And this person is asking if they were to put a stick of queen mandibular pheromone in the hive when removing an old queen, would the bees sense or not sense queenlessness and not build queen cells? I didn't even know that queen mandibular pheromones were a thing. Yeah. So just like the name implies, queens produce pheromones from their mandibular region. And there it's a bouquet of chemicals in it, but there's one or two key chemicals in it. And in this particular pheromone, right, this is one of the ways worker bees know that they have a queen present in the hive. And so you could actually purchase synthetically produced queen mandibular pheromone. It's impregnated in these little plastic strips. And we've used them in the past a lot for research purposes. And I know some beekeepers will use them in in queenless colonies and things like that. So the listener is essentially asking if I de-queen the hive and put in one of these queen mandibular pheromone sticks, would the bees believe themselves to still be queen right? Mm -hmm. And so I would argue for a little bit of time, they certainly would. But ultimately it's not just queen mandibular pheromone that signals that she is present. There's also signals that the bees pick up through the presence of brood and other things. And so there's a lot of feedback loops that collectively would tell the bees, Hey, we've got these conflicting messages. We're receiving information through queen mandibular pheromone that we've got a queen, but on the other hand, we don't have brood and, and we're, we're missing some of these other chemical signatures. So I feel like maybe for a little bit of time, they, it, they might be fooled, but ultimately they'll figure it out. And I, and I read ahead, this listener specifically is interested in knowing, can this be used as a strategy to improve acceptance of new queens, right? Amy, mm-hmm. am I reading that mm-hmm. correctly? Yep. Yeah. And so the idea is, is it a better way for them to accept queens? And what I would argue is at the end of the day, you know, the, the tried and true measures of requeening colonies with mated queens is, is really the way to go. So, right, when you purchase mm-hmm. a queen, she's in a wooden cage or a plastic cage, you stick that in there. And as the bees chew through the candy in that cage, by the time they release the queen, they've accepted her because they've spent some time getting to know her through sure. the screen mesh. But what I would argue is if you feel like using QMP is necessary for you to um, get bees to accept queens, if they've already failed to requeen themselves, what I would argue, there's a much better strategy to do that than incorporating QMP into the queen rearing strategy. And what I would say is that's using nukes to requeen colonies. And I have a document 
on that. We'll make sure and link in the show notes for this particular question. Um, using nukes to requeen honeybee colonies is, is to me the best way to uh, to address a multitude of problems when you are losing a queen and your colony may have failed to requeen themselves or they have laying workers, et cetera. But all sure. the way back to the original question, you can use queen mandibular pheromone to stabilize colonies for a little bit of time in the absence of a queen. And that's the reason we use it in our research. Um, there might be times where we want to do research projects where we don't want a queen to be present but we still want the bees to be stable for a while and we can put these QMP sticks in there and achieve that purpose. That's pretty neat. And, you know, just as far as you saying to basically put in a new nuke when you're requeening, I, I guess I've never thought about that before. It's a great idea. I mean, you have all your resources, the colonies, you know, basically put together, ready to go and they've accepted their queen. So yeah, I hadn't I, thought about that. Before. I mean, that's spot on, you know, it, when you're requeening with a queen in a cage, what the bees get in return for that is a queen. When you're requeening uh-huh. with a nuke, you're getting a queen brood, honey, pollen, and sure. bees. And, and that's why I argue, you know, that's another question, maybe another segment for another day, but that's why I argue having a couple of nukes on hand in your apiary is very useful because I can't really think of a queen problem that would arise mm-hmm. that's not best addressed through requeening with a nuke. Mm-hmm. But I can think of lots of problems that would arise that aren't as well addressed using, you know, caged queens or things like, or allowing bees to make themselves sure. a queen. So I love using nukes for that purpose. And we'll make sure and link that document in the show notes so folks can have a look at that document, see some of my ideas. Great. Okay. So for the second question, um, this person's wanting to know if you can explain the flight capabilities and the homing abilities of young nurse bees. So um, this is if they ever should find themselves outside the hive. So let's say I'm a horrible beekeeper. No, I'm just kidding. I'm a great beekeeper. Let's say <laughs> that I accidentally drop a full frame of bees and so do on horrible the beekeepers drop frames of bees. That's why I said, just kidding. I don't know, Amy, it's too late. You've kind of dug a hole there. (laughs) So what if I accidentally drop a full frame of bees on the ground? Uh, Will the youngest nurse bees be able to find their way back inside? Yeah, I totally get the motivation behind this question. So if you had asked me this question about a year and a half ago, I would have told you a completely different answer than the one I'm about to give you now. So we all know that bees start their home finding ability flights somewhere around two weeks old. I'm rounding that off. So so that's a generalization, but about two weeks old, they'll start making small flights from the hive, figuring out where their hive is in context with other landmarks. And that prepares them for foraging, which they usually start somewhere around 19 to 21 days old. Again, biology is messy. You've heard me say that a lot. So there's a lot of wiggle room there. All right. The reason I'm going to answer the question differently now is about a year and a half ago, maybe two years now, I forget, we set up an observation hive study where we were going to look at the impacts of pesticides on bees, but it required us to mark about 200 bees when they were newly emerged. We marked them and placed them into their respective observation hives. So yellow bees would go into observation hive one, you know, red mm-hmm. bees, observation hive two, blue bees, observation hive three. And we had 12 observation hives, each with different color, newly emerged bees. And within 24 hours, we were finding bees in uh, the other observation hives, some of them a few observation hives down the wall from them. That was incredibly surprising to me. I did not expect to see bees in the wrong colony for about two weeks, but within 24 hours, 24 to 48 hours, it wasn't in high amounts, but we were seeing it. And yes, theoretically, 
They could have crawled out of their observation hive down the outside wall of our building and into the next observation hive or the second or third one from them. But it was an easier explanation to believe that they just went out on a flight early on within their first 24 hours and they ended up going into the wrong hive. How this helps me answer this question is once bees' bodies are hardened and they are capable of flying, you know, somewhere between 24 and 48 hours, then yes, if they fall to the ground during an, an, an inspection, I have every reason to believe that they'll fly back into that hive or maybe accidentally the wrong hive just next door. So I don't worry about that at all. The only new bees that I worry about are those that are less than about 24 hours old whose bodies aren't hardened and they're unable to fly. If they drop to the ground, the only hope that they have of making it back into the hive is crawling up into it. And so where I live in the state of Florida, we have a lot of ant problems. And so if I'm working a hive and a lot of these newly emerged bees drop to the ground, they'll be taken out well before they're able to crawl back up the hive stand into the hive. So to answer this listener's question, I would argue the majority of those newly emerged bees will make it back into the hive, but you will have some that are unable to fly. And, and I don't know what this, the ratio is, but my guess is at least 50-50 that they make it back. I've seen them crawl back up into the hive stand. I know a lot of beekeepers, especially hobbyist beekeepers, if, if they feel like a lot of bees have dropped to the ground, they'll rest sticks from the ground to the entrance. So bees will crawl up sticks to go back into those hives if the hive stands difficult to navigate. But yeah, I, I would have answered that totally different a few years ago. I'd say, well, you know, the bees can't fly and there's a low probability they'll make it back. Sure. But after seeing <laughs> just our preliminary results from this observation house study, they're flying at a much younger age than I thought they were um, and certainly capable of making it back into the hive. So what about the queen? You know, do you think that the queen, if she fell off the frame during inspection? Absolutely. I believe she'll make it back a good chunk of the time. That, but you have the same problem with her that you do with super young worker bees. And that's that oftentimes when they're laying, they're unable to fly. In fact, when they swarm, mm -hmm. the bees have to stop feeding them so much and they have to make her exercise so that she loses weight. So the real problem with queens is not can she recognize her hive, it's can she fly at all? And sure. so it's a much bigger risk when you drop a queen to the ground than when you drop a few workers. I will say, though, there's a second way that people see their queens lose. I, I lost. I happen to release my queen. When I'm requeening using a caged queen, I will release her manually into the hive. And queens that have been sitting in cages for a few days absolutely can fly. And there's been times where I've opened up the queen cage and hoped that she would crawl down into the hive. And instead she crawled up the queen cage and flew away. And, you know, <laughs> that leads to the next question. Will she ever find her way back? And I yeah. will tell you, I have seen this happen dozens and dozens and dozens of times. And I have always found her back in that hive at my next inspection. So I have seen plenty of them fly off of the comb, fly out of the queen cage, and me be super duper worried only to find her seven to 10 days later. Back <laughs> She's in like, that just hive. kidding. The thing about it, Amy, that's remarkable to me is how does a queen who's never been free running in that hive, right? A caged queen that I just released, how does she know which hive to go to? So it's just mm -hmm. remarkable to me. But if you have a fully mated and laying queen fall from a frame to the ground, I would say there's a much lower probability that she's going to make it back into that hive alive. 
Awesome. All right. So for our third question, you know, we are recording this right now in March. So it's springtime, almost springtime. It's getting warmer outside. And so people are wondering, you know, what is the optimal way for bees to build new comb during nectar flow? Well, the good news is building new comb during the nectar flow is the easiest that you'll be able to do it throughout the rest of the year. Bees just have a propensity to build comb that time of year. And furthermore, it takes energy, considerable amounts of energy to secrete and handle, manipulate that wax into comb. So, yeah. So how do, what do we do to help this? Yeah. So the, the key is, is the bees want to do it anyway. So how do we optimize that? Well, you need to go into it knowing a couple of things. Thing number one, for every little bit of comb that they're going to have to produce during the nectar flow it's going to cost you a little bit of the production of the honey that you otherwise would have made, right? So Mm -hmm. what I always tell people is comb is gold. You want the bees to make it that first year. You want them to make as much of it as you may ever need to use in that hive the the first year. And then as you extract honey out of it, you want to store that comb in a way that they never have to build it again. You could freeze it. You need to protect it from wax moths, what have you, but pulled comb is gold. You really want them to make it the first year and then to be able to hold on to it. So then how do you coerce the bees to do it during the major nectar flow? Well, there's no coercion necessary. They're just going to want to do it. If you give them boxes with frames of foundation, they're going to try to build comb on it. Just a couple of pointers though. Pointer number one, I do not like to mix drawn comb and frames of foundation in the same box when I'm trying to get them to pull that foundation. What I like to do when I'm getting them to draw comb or pull that foundation is give them an entire super of exclusively foundation. That way they'll pull it correctly. The reason I say that is I know some people who who will say, well, maybe I can coerce them to pull those combs faster if I give a frame of foundation and a frame of pulled comb and then a frame of foundation and a frame of pulled comb. But what I see happen a lot in that scenario is they will make that frame of pulled comb fatter Mm -hmm. than it already is. Mm -hmm. And then they'll pull out the foundation into cells that are really short. Or worse so you'll yet, end up with like wonky. Exactly, yep. exactly. Wonky worse comb. yet, Amy, they'll build it. The bee space will be violated. So what they'll do is they won't build comb on the foundation, but they'll build it hanging off the edge of the top bar. Mm-hmm. It, it just you get lots of wacky patterns. So I like to just give them exclusively a box of foundation. I don't like to cycle in a few frames here and there. I like just to make the whole shebang foundation. Then the question is, is where do you put that box? Do you put it on top of the uppermost box or do you put it below all the honey supers right up against the brood nest? And research has shown that it doesn't really matter. So you can just save your back, put it on top. And if the bees have the incoming resources necessary to pull it, they'll pull it. If not, they won't. So, you know, there's a couple of pointers there. Don't mix pulled combs with foundation and and just put the empty box on top. Again, you are going to lose honey production those first time, the first time that those boxes are pulled. It's just, it's just what's going to happen. As a result, some beekeepers will try to get bees to pull comb outside of the honey flow and they'll do that by feeding, but it, that costs you other, other ways. It's the management mm-hmm. cost as well as the cost of feeding them sugar, sugar syrup or corn syrup. So, you know, that first year, it's a good idea to let them use the major nectar flow to pull out that comb. But those second and third years, it's a good idea to make sure that you protect those combs well so the bees never have to pull it out again. Great. All right. Well, thank you so much. (music) 
Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening today. We'd like to give an extra special thank you to our podcast coordinator, Lauren Goldstein, and to our audio engineer, James Weaver. Without their hard work, two bees in a podcast would not be possible. For more information and additional resources for today's episode, don't forget to visit the UF IFAS Honeybee Research and Extension Laboratory's website, ufhoneybee.com. Do you have questions you won't answer it on air? If so, email them to honeybee at ifas.ufl.edu or message us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at UF Honeybee Lab. While there, don't forget to follow us. Thank you for listening to Two Bees in a Podcast.